Welcome to the podcast, Neither Free Nor Fair, about election security and the fate of democracy in the 21st century. This is episode 10, Election Reform, Frontiers and Challenges. I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum. I am joined today for our second episode with Kevin Johnson. Kevin is the Executive Director and Founder of the Election Reformers Network and has 20 years experience in election reform programming in the US and abroad. Kevin was on our most recent episode, Election Calm or Chaos, to discuss the ways in which the fundamentals of the US election system are mostly sound, but even so, some of the points of concern he perceives for the November vote and certification of results. For the second episode, I wanted to take a step back or perhaps into the future to discuss how we should tackle some of the persistent challenges to democracy in the US as they relate to how we vote and conduct elections. Kevin's efforts with the Election Reformers Network has worked on programming regarding the Electoral College and a potential move to a national popular vote or not, nonpartisan redistricting to end gerrymandering, campaign finance, ranked choice voting, and impartial election administration. Will tackling these core aspects of how democracy functions improve the likelihood that democracy survives? Hello, Kevin. Hey, James. Nice to be back. So Kevin, on the last episode, you walked us through the ways that Americans should and shouldn't be worried about specific threats for this election coming up. But one thing I've noticed when it comes to election reform in the US is that it seems like we're always fighting the last battle. Uh, For example, I'm thinking in, in 2000, Americans were kind of maybe for the first time made aware of the strange way that the electoral college determines presidential elections rather than the winner of the national vote. And we also learned that jurisdictions, even within the same state, have ballots that look and are counted very differently. And so those became big topics for reform. And in this election, obviously, we have questions around voter access and mail-in ballots. But you spent two decades working on all sorts of ways to program reforms to the American system above and beyond what we might learn about in any one election. And so it seemed fruitful to me for us to discuss more persistent problems now, rather than wait to see what it is that we're all talking about after this election. I, I totally agree with you. And I think from a big picture perspective, there's, a, there's an interesting paradox about Americans and American democracy. And you know, we sort of, we are the first modern democracy and we're proud of it and we should be, um, but that can incline us to think that, you know, of course we know how to do this. We set it up, we've got it set, we've got it running. Um, and to not kind of spend time on the system tweaks and changes that really every democracy needs. You need democracy needs ongoing maintenance. And actually the older democracies in some sense have the biggest challenge in taking advantage of this democracy learning curve the world has been. And if you look at newer democracies, they were able to jump right to the institutions that have been found to make the most sense. Whereas we're stuck with some legacy institutions that can be very hard to change. So one of those I'd like to start with is the Electoral College, since that is a feature of American elections since its founding and it appears in the Constitution. What are the problems with the Electoral College and what solutions have been produced and what alternatives do you and your colleagues, uh, what what alternatives have you guys developed as an alternative to the Electoral College? Thanks, James. That's a great question. So I'm going to focus on two particular problems about the Electoral College. There are many, and, and this election has been great for digging up you know, lots of obscure scenarios that could happen. Um, but the two major problems that people talk about are, first of all, the winner-take-all allocation of electors, and second of all, the unequal weight of votes from small states versus large states. 
And I'm going to argue that the path to reform is really to recognize that the first of those problems has a much greater impact on weakening our democracy than the second. And I'll explain why I think so. So what is winner take all? I think we all recognize that that is the description of the system by which states give all of their electoral votes to the candidate who gets the most votes in that state. So if a candidate wins California by 10 million votes or 10,000 votes, same difference. That candidate gets all 55 of California's electoral votes. So why is that a problem exactly? Well, well just Kevin, to... just really quickly, I just want to so clarify then. So yeah. then that those are those each state's electoral votes, that's then what you add to get to a, a majority, which is the magic 270 number that yes. either candidate has to receive based on the winner take all allocation at the state level. They have to get up to 270 overall to win. That's right. And those are the numbers that are counted. We're going to see on TV the, the number of votes in each state. It's actually the electoral votes, of course, that matter the most. I was going to say, in there, it kind of looks like it's proportional with respect to the fact that any, any candidate's 270 votes are coming from different states, obviously, by definition. But you're saying within each of those states, they're winning all of the, the allocation of that state, the, the allocation that that state makes to the overall electoral college vote. That's right. And here's why that matters. That is actually the way in which we can have a second place candidate win. People think that Donald Trump won in 2016, even though he had the second most votes, just because of small states and small states having those extra electoral votes. Uh, every state gets the electoral votes equal to their members in the House of Representatives plus the two for their senators. So that tends to give small states more weight. And a lot of people think that's how Trump won as a second place candidate. In fact, if you look at the 16 smallest states, they split evenly, eight to eight. Trump did not win as a second place candidate because he won more small states. He won as a second place candidate because he won more states with more small margins of victory. So if you think it, it's all about, can you use votes efficiently? Uh, the winner take all system allows it to be the case that someone could win by just a little bit here, just a little bit here, just a little bit there and become president, even if they haven't gotten the most votes nationwide. And that's what happened in 2016 and could very well happen again. The, the scenario in which Trump wins in 2020 is that scenario. There's almost no polling that suggests he's actually gonna win the, the, uh, the popular vote. So the quote unquote battleground aspect is sort yes. of, it has two components. One is states to which either side could reasonably win, um, but states that actually are rich in electoral votes, not just a number of small states adding up. And so Florida, perhaps Texas, uh, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, you can win by a little bit, and that, but basically win by a lot. Exactly. And you call them battleground states, and that's the one of the big problems with the winner take all system is that it turns our nation from a whole nation of 50 states to just a subset of those states that people pay attention to. In 2016, 60% of the campaign events took place in four states, 92% of the campaign events took place in 11 states. And the pattern this year is look, looking like it's heading in exactly the same direction. Uh, and those states aren't really representative of the US. You know, election discussion and campaign and debates 
emphasize coal jobs because coal is prevalent in a lot of swing states. They do not emphasize the much larger clean energy uh, employment sector because clean energy doesn't swing. It's not a swing state job. So the, the battleground element has this way of distorting the campaign distorting the national debate, it also distorts policy. Um, we have ethanol policies about you know, how corn is grown that have to do with winning Iowa. We have sugar tariffs that have to do with winning Florida. So policies get driven by the Electoral College. And the other thing that happens is that states that are not battleground states get left behind. Campaigns do not, Democrats do not go to the deep south. They do not go to the plains. Uh, Republicans do not go, candidates do not go to California and New York. And in a way that hurts our party infrastructure, because there are there's a Republican party in California. It used to be very strong. It's been ignored. And in that weakens it and it makes California effectively a one-party state to the detriment of democracy in California. And the same is true on the other side. So winner take all has that whole range of problems. It's also worth pointing out that it does not exist in the Constitution. It is not the system that the founders thought they were setting up. And once the founders saw the way that it worked, they all wanted it changed. They all supported later in their lives different amendments to change the Electoral College from the way it had been written. So, so what do you mean by that specifically? And what are the reforms that you, you all are working on to reduce that winner take all uh, at the state level? Yep. So we support something called the top two proportional allocation. And this would be an amendment-based change that basically has two provisions. The first is that electors are replaced by electoral votes and those votes can be expressed in decimal form. So instead of California having 55 electors, it has 55 electoral votes but one side might win 25.3346 and the other one might win 25 point or 24 point da 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 da. And the, the decimal element allows the vote to represent the actual um, balance of voting in the state. So the first change is the change from human electors to electoral votes. The second change is that each state is required to give all of their electoral votes proportionally to the top two vote getters in the state. So just to give a simple example, take a state, Missouri, I think has 10 electoral college votes. Let's say the vote in Missouri was 60% for the Republican candidate, 40% for the Democratic candidate. Missouri's electoral votes would go six to four. Just that's sort of how the math would work. So, so if a third party like a Ralph Nader or a Jill Stein had won actual votes at the state level in Missouri, but they came in third, they wouldn't receive any of that allocation. They're, That's correct. It would only go to the top two. That's correct. And that has the impact of really reducing the spoiler problem. You talk about Jill Stein. She won 1% of the vote in Michigan in 2016, and that 1% effectively swung 16 electoral votes from Clinton to Trump. Under a top two proportional situation, 1% of the vote swings about I forget what it is. It's about 0.05 of an electoral vote. So there's much less of a risk that the sort of outlier question of whether third party candidates come in or not, you know, impact the, the, the vote the way they have in, in many elections. That being, I mean, 
the form should accommodate a third party to win though. And so that's, that's an important part of how people think about reforms. And there have been third party candidates in many cases have come in second in uh, different states throughout history. Uh, and so in this scenario, they would win electoral votes by coming, by coming in second or by coming in first. Okay. So, so just so I'm clear, so it would retain part of the logic of the electoral college because you would still have each state having its electoral college votes be equivalent to the quote unquote electors like California, or California with 55 or Missouri with 10. But then you would allocate those not based the way we do now, which is whoever wins the popular vote in the state, but rather have it be proportionally allocated. You're basically taking 55 as the total number of electoral votes. That becomes your new denominator. And then looking at what both of the top two candidates got in the numerator and the popular vote and translating that into the number of electoral votes they would get out of 55 or out of and 10 or something like that. Exactly, yes. That's and then how you still works. count to 270. You still count to a majority then of the Electoral College votes. Well, that could be debated because whether or not you need a majority, I think is one of the important clauses to consider. I would prefer that a plurality could okay. a plurality winner because that's the way really to have a third, a third candidate have a path to victory. But stepping back, what's the point? What does this achieve? This puts every state in play and puts every voter in play. It means that mm. all candidates have something to gain by going everywhere. You know, if you naturally had 20% support as a Republican in New York, if you went there and really talked to people and explained why your ideas were good, maybe that goes up to 25%. That's, you know, a couple electoral votes that would matter in your total. So it, it, it tends, it moves the campaign toward a national discussion and away from just a focused discussion on, on, on those swing states. I was gonna say, and it reinvigorates, it makes voters everywhere count. Right now, voters don't count. They really do not matter in two thirds of the states in the country. But Kevin, the, the other reason I like about this is I'm thinking about the parties too, because now you're telling the Republican party that the, the millions of Republicans that vote for the presidential election in California, now they matter again for the Republicans. Exactly. And you're telling the Democrats, you know, we talk about maybe Texas is going to become a swing state, maybe it will or won't. But you're telling the Democrats that um, their the, the millions of Democratic voters in Texas matter as well. And so the, it's not it's it's literally not winner take all. It's literally not Texas is only worth as much as it's worth if you win it by one vote. And the party piece of that's exactly right. And the party piece of it is why there may be a path to success here. Because if you talk to state level politicians outside of the handful of swing states, they hate being neglected by the presidential campaign trail. Every year, the campaign does not come to their state. They don't get the benefit in down ballot races from having the campaign events. And so something that can bring the campaign to their states is something that they will, that they will welcome. Uh, would this lead to, I mean, as a political scientist, I'm always kind of interested in how electoral rules translate into the number of parties. Could this lead to a fractionalization of parties at the national level, but parties that are strong regionally? Like, could you imagine that maybe the, you know, you get kind of a moderate Republican style Sunbelt party, but then you get a more far-right fundamentalist Christian Republican Party in the Southeast, or maybe you get kind of moderate Democrats and Republicans in the Northeast joining that are different from the kind of far-left progressives. You know, I think that's possible. I think a lot of it would depend on that key issue you raise, which is what's the winning requirement? 
is this, um, do you maintain the majority rule that we have now or not? You know, and I, I mean, this is obviously a, you know, a long-term big picture change and it's one that would require an amendment and any amendment should be the basis of a really broad debate and a debate on the Hill of, of all sides. And so the different potential ways of, you know, uh, requirements for winning, is it a majority? If, if uh, no majority wins, how is, what's the tiebreaker, et cetera? All of that would have to be debated. But, and I think that would impact how, how parties get formed. But I, I want to point out what the other sort of key benefit and rationale behind this is that, and you've seen this overseas, uh, when countries consider fundamental election reform, it has to be a broad-based discussion. It has to take in the perspectives of a broad political environment. And right now, the main alternative to this, the existing electoral college system is the national popular vote compact, which we're gonna to get to, I'm sure. And that has very little support among Republicans. It's advancing and it, among in democratic states. And it's advancing in a way that's potentially really politically divisive, where we have sort of one side of the country that wants to change elections one way, another side totally refusing. And the proportional approach can appeal on the right because it keeps the electoral college math that exists now. And second, it keeps elections based as a state-based administration. The national popular vote wants to add up all of the votes nationwide and effectively have a single federal election, which on the right tends to be viewed as an encroachment on our sort of basic federalism. The proportional system that I've described would have each state conduct its own election under its own election rules, determine the winner and then allocate this formula to that winner. And one reason that that distinction is important is that under national popular vote, you could have individual states that by changing their rules, change their relative impact on the country. So imagine California, for example, adopting a universal voting rule requiring everyone to vote or adopting 16%, you know, 16 year old voting. A Republican state, a Texas would have to follow suit in effect, or it would be allowing California to grow its impact on a national popular vote. In a proportional system, each state remains, at, there's a border around each state's election laws that don't allow those laws to impact what happens in other states. And that's something that, that appeals on the right. So these are, these are, this makes it a more moderate reform from that political perspective. I see, I, I like that because I think you're right that, you're exactly right that anytime you do reform, all the people that are winning under the previous system have to, in a sense, be bought off or convinced that the new system isn't gonna totally threaten them. But it, it requires consensus. Uh, it requires people really kind of meeting in the middle, whatever that means and pursuing something. I mean, the way you get to agreement is that you sort of come up with the agreement that gives everybody a little bit more than they had before, but they don't lose everything that they had before. Exactly. I hadn't thought of with the national popular vote, the idea that states could kind of outcompete each other to change their own state level laws to magnify what their contribution to that popular vote is. I hadn't thought of that. I think the other thing you'd get, frankly, is, you know, you'd probably get all sorts of accusations that, oh, California, you're, you're, you're letting non-citizens vote. And why should we let the president be decided by something that, you know, election administrators in California get to police? We, do we know they're doing it correctly? So there's a whole sort of risk of, you know, that color of problem starting to arise. 
Yeah, because Kevin, one of the things people forget is that the, the Constitution left the franchise to the states. It didn't, it didn't establish what the, how the franchise would be determined nationally in the constitution. It actually left it to the states, which was actually a good thing early on because it allowed certain states, particularly in the late 1700s and early 1800s that had more what we would consider progressive forms of representation, you know, not necessarily having a property qualification um, and, and letting states kind of I mean, the problem with that is then the southern states were able to restrict it more and more, but the northern states expanded it more and more kind of in advance of 1828 in ways that people don't really understand because the, the federal constitution just basically, yeah, left it to the states to figure it out. That, that's true. But that being said, the constitution also gives Congress the right effectively to repeal state laws about at least the election in the House and Senate. And it's one of the most, you know, strongest powers Congress has. And in some sense, it's one of the least used. Um, and I think, you know, resistance in the South was probably a big reason why it wasn't used. But anyway, yeah. that's getting us off topic. Yeah. So, so besides winner take all, what are the other kind of reforms that you're looking at that are focused at the state level um, or around the Electoral College or other things? Well, so we also spend a lot of time thinking about election administration and who makes who who is in the position to make decisions about election rules and about how elections are conducted. And in that regard, you've done a lot of work overseas and the people in my organization have as well. And the US is really a huge outlier in the extent to which it gives decision-making to partisan entities. Most other countries put an independent entity in charge of election administration and in charge of things like drawing the districts. Uh, here in the United States, that's mostly the responsibility of state legislatures, which are inherently partisan, and the administrative piece of it is the responsibility of usually a secretary of state who is often elected or appointed, but always with a partisan affiliation. We really believe that a lot of the problems that you've seen over the last three months, which we've had this huge tug of war in the United States between you know, should we have more absentee voting for the pandemic or not? You know, <clears throat> should there be drop boxes in every county or how many? You know, what, when should states be allowed to open their absentee ballots? There should have been this ridiculous level of micromanagement of response to the pandemic because it's partisan entities who are in the position to make decisions on these issues. We've done this little study of other countries on this issue and most in the other countries we've looked at, sure, they all made big changes in response to the pandemic. The changes were made by the election officials, not by partisan legislatures. And there were zero lawsuits here in the United States. I think the number is something like 377 lawsuits filed uh, in about the changes due to the pandemic in our election rules. So we're big believers that um, making this transition to empowering nonpartisan entities will really help. And there's a, a lot to be thought about about how you actually establish nonpartisan entities. Uh, and one way that Canada is an interesting model. It, it, in each Canadian province has a, elect, a chief electoral officer who, by the way, not only has to be nonpartisan, that person is not allowed to vote. Uh, just as a sort of symbol of their nonpartisanship. And in most states, that person gets selected by a multi-stakeholder committee made up of election academics. James, you could be on one of these committees. <laughs> <laughs> members, members of the judiciary and members of the local parliament. 
who nominate you know, different candidates and who then are, are selected and approved by the legislature. A model like, it's a little bit, we have in Massachusetts something similar to that, which is the um, Judicial Nominating Committee, which is a, a multi-stakeholder body that names candidates who are then nominated for judgeship. Um, we need to start getting that kind of mechanism that names our chief election officers in each state, as opposed to what we do now, which is we have secretaries of state who run as candidates in, for statewide office. The way you win in statewide office is you're a part of a political party, you're a politician, you're in the political game, and you often have your eye on your next run. Maybe you go on to run for governor, as quite a lot of them do, or you go on to run for Senate. That's a politician. That's not an election specialist. And politicians are not going to be thinking neutrally and impartially about elections when they're faced with election decisions. So, so at the state level, if you were to kind of create this entity managed in the way that you said, it would be nonpartisan. They then would be responsible for kind of filling out then the bureaucratic functioning of voter registration, conduct, you know, doing conducting the election itself, tabulating the results and certifying the winner. And they would be the ones managing then local jurisdictions as well, right? Those would also remain nonpartisan positions. Yeah, that there's a lot to, of change to go at there. And you're you're correct to get into that detail because we have a hybrid system where a certain amount of election decision-making is conducted at the local election office, some at the state office. There's a lot of uncertainty in between. And so that means when problems happen, when, you know, been looking at Georgia a lot recently, and as soon as the lines are long, the secretary of state points at Fulton County and Fulton County points at the secretary of state. And so we, we don't really have the accountability that, that we need. But yes, I think ultimately, you know, we have a hyper-localized election administration. Um, and that is probably suboptimal. I mean, you mentioned the different ballots in 2000. You know, you, Pennsylvania has this incredible situation this past year where they, they needed to have every county change their voting equipment, but the Secretary of State did not have the authority to require them to do so. So Secretary of State Bookvar had to go county by county to persuade each county to adopt the type of voting system that wasn't going to be vulnerable to cyber hacks. She succeeded, but that shouldn't, that shouldn't happen that way. No modern democracy should be working at that level. We need centralized decision-making that's, that's based on election expertise. So would this body also be responsible for drawing congressional boundary lines? Because I think one of the things that's frustrating for a lot of Americans is kind of, you know, your party may win or, or lose the presidential election. But I think a lot of people feel like even locally at the state level, you know, things are kind of being rigged in such a way that all of us are going to end up in, in districts that are either, you know, reliably Republican or reliably Democratic. And so that also kind of means that we, we're not really, anytime we're voting, we're not really affecting change in any kind of meaningful way and that the, the, it's all baked in you know, unless you move, um, you're probably not going to see a lot of changeover in your district's representation in Congress. Um, so is there a way to then get that politicization of drawing those boundaries out of the hands of state legislatures? There absolutely is a way, and that definitely needs to happen. Whether or not those are two entities, you have an independent redistricting commission on the one hand and this chief election officer model that I mentioned on the other, and they do the separate functions or whether you combine them in one function, different states may take different approaches to that, but they both need to be moved out of partisan hands. You're exactly right. As you know, some of that's happened. You know, there are some states that have 
done a good job in recent years implementing these new independent redistricting models. Uh, and that's that's been super helpful because the gerrymandering problem is a huge problem. We have, you know, really uh, what you might even call tyranny of the minority in some states where, where legislatures that, you know, a party that receives fewer than the majority of votes gets a substantial majority of seats just by the way the the seats are drawn and they're allowed to perpetuate that power into the future, um, you know, by doing the redistricting to their favor each, each time. It's a huge conflict of interest. I want to get to another reform in, in, a, in a minute, which has to do with multi-member districts, which is one way of getting at that problem, but we can come to that. Uh, yeah, no, why don't you talk about that? Yeah, so there's an interesting idea that's been promoted. Um, and initially this focuses on the US House of Representatives, not on the state legislative side. But it's an idea to get away from the winner-take-all combat that happens now in each district and to get away from and to reduce some of the problems of the district uh, boundary drawing that you're talking about. And the idea is instead of having representatives elected one by one in individual districts, instead you would have a larger district from which three to five members would be elected. Why is that a good idea? Um, because that approach can represent a minority in a state. So take New York City, for example. New York City, I believe, has eight members of Congress. For a while, there was a Republican from uh, Staten Island that, that uh, uh, representative lost. You're, you're saying New York City itself. Sorry, did I say yeah, New York? New York yeah. City. So New within York, the City. within the five boroughs, there are eight different congressional districts. That's that's what I was trying to say. Did yeah. I say New York City? Yeah. Um, and there are 20, 30 percent of New Yorkers are Republican, but they are going to have a hard time winning any one of those eight seats that are all exist on a winner take all basis. The idea instead is you take those eight seats and you divide it into. Uh, two, three, uh, maybe it would be three threes, or maybe you bring in another seat. In any case, you have multi-member districts, and in those larger districts, you might see a Republican win one or two. And so the eight or 10 that go from the larger New York metropolitan area would reflect the, would proportionally reflect Republican power in the city in a way it does not. In my state of Massachusetts, it'd be the same thing. Massachusetts hasn't elected a Republican to, to Congress, to the House of Representatives in decades. We right now have nine seats. There's about 30% of registered voters in Massachusetts are Republican. We regularly re elect Republican um, governors, but the single member district, particularly with some redistricting control tends to be used to make that always play to the to the Democratic side. So instead of our nine individual seats, we might have three three member districts um, that each would elect three, and then maybe the total of nine ends up six Democrats, two Republicans, and an independent. One of the impacts of this would be helping third parties and independents have a chance to win seats. I wonder, Kevin, if it would also increase the likelihood that other types of, you know, beyond partisan minorities, of uh, other types of minorities might gain representation. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, more gender representation or certain ethnic minorities, for instance, in New York, that may not otherwise have um, numbers that are going to be strong enough to even win in a safe 
Democratic or Republican seat in their congressional district. But if they were to sort of run in these multi-member districts, you know, you could imagine a, a Hasidic Jew winning, or you could imagine um, someone of Dominican uh, descent or Puerto Rican descent winning with, with greater likelihood. Absolutely. And, and the point you raised earlier is, is a good one to bring in here, which is that, you know, reform needs to be done in a way that isn't a zero-sum game and needs to uh, get all the players in reform need to see some benefit. And so thinking about that aspect, um, the organizers who've been sort of planning this or developing this idea have combined it with a notion of expanding the house. Um, right now, there are 435 members of the house and it, and it hasn't been increased for nearly a hundred years. Uh, it was increased regularly throughout history uh, in, in order to, to keep pace with the growing population. It is now proportionally the, the smallest house or smallest legislative body relative to its population, you know, almost in the world as a, entirely. I mean, it's way, just as an example, the average member of parliament in the United Kingdom represents one sixth the number of voters that the average member of the House of Representatives. And they have 650 members of the, of the exactly. House of Commons, and we have, yeah. 400, what, 435 in our house. Right. Um, so it's a, it's a difficult reform to raise, in a sense, because there's such a sort of anti-Congress sentiment right now, and there's always sort of the throw the bums out. But, you know, if, if the fire department in your city isn't work doing a good job putting the fires out, you don't, you know, it, maybe it needs more fire engines, you know? Well, well, Kevin, that gets that gets to a broad point, which we we can go to the broad point, and then I want you to talk about ranked choice voting. The broad point is that what you're suggesting probably sounds very foreign or different to a lot of Americans, but the specific reforms that you're suggesting are very common ways of doing things in other countries. Yes. But the act of reforming the system itself is also very common in other countries. Mm. And, and so I think it's interesting for Americans, you, you know, we're, it's always like this Band-Aid attempt, but these kind of fundamental things are things that other countries go through all the time. Um, and, and so it's not just the specifics, it's the getting used to the fact that, you know, every couple decades, we may want to revisit something that we think is pretty important and fundamental and just see if there's room to amend it or change it. I think it's a very good point. And I also think it brings up the particular moments of world history of the last 50 years where there's been a really remarkable increase in the number of democracies in the world. Uh, and as countries, you know, either that were behind the, the uh, Iron Curtain that emerged after the fall of the Berlin Wall or that were former colonies in Africa or former dictatorships in Latin America, as countries like that kind of made the transition to democratic systems. And it's always a fitful transition. And no, you know, I'm, I'm not here saying any of these, any of these transitions have gone perfectly that, you know, many of them continue to have fits and starts and bumps on the road, but the number of democracies has increased substantially. And as countries have made those transitions and have had the opportunity to choose what kinds of systems do they want in their new democratic future, very few have picked what we have which is winner take all single member district in, in the legislature. Most have picked some form of proportional representation or have combined systems in which there's a proportional representation in one chamber. And the reason for that is that the system we have is a very conflict driven 
political system. And it, you know, and this was the work that we did, and you were also involved in as well. You know, there in Central and Eastern Europe or in South Africa, you know, where you have countries that are coming yeah. out of extraordinary like conflict-ridden yeah. histories, they realized that winner-take-all was not going to be the right path for them to manage. You know, a country that was trying to assimilate the the members of the former Communist Party with the people oppressed by the former Communist Party, or assimilate the former. Uh, you know, restricted apartheid Africa, black community with the elite white community. And so we too are reaching the level of social conflict that we really need to think about systems that reduce that conflict. And we have a very conflictual approach right now. Yeah, and I, I always make the South Africa comparison in my teaching because, you know, they really, to dismantle apart, to begin to dismantle apartheid in 1990 and then have the first you know, truly democratic elections in 1994, they didn't completely scrap everything, but they more or less started over and had to write a new constitution. And the counterfactual I always think is reconstruction in the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, if coming out of the Civil War, if there had been kind of a more aggressive approach to change some of the fundamentals, rather than kind of, uh, you know, first of all, allow institutions that were there to then be used to be oppressive and restrictive, um, uh, you know, not necessarily breaking the law, but actually using the law and using institutions to be oppressive. There was a lot of stuff that was done that was extra legal, but then just sort of leaving it up to populations to move north, you know, the great migration. Well, if, if, if life is gonna be hard under Jim Crow, well then uh, I guess African-Americans can move north and live in a part of the country that's more accepting of who they are. You know, South Africa didn't take that approach. They didn't just say like, okay, well, white people are gonna be over here and black people are gonna be over here and we're gonna keep everything the same. And so it seems like those moments of crisis that we've had before, we haven't really leveraged to use to our advantage to make the system more equitable and just. Well, and, and just extending the same point, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, which you know, made particularly the white community understand the reality of what was going on that they were able, in a sense, to ignore, um, uh, really had an impact of preventing the kind of slide back you know, that ha happened after reconstruction in, in the South. And, you know, there's arguably been a need in our country, and maybe this is happening more now, but there's been a need in our country for some element of that kind of reckoning that comes about uh, from something like that Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So do you want to talk about ranked choice voting and get super wonky? Sure, sure. I'm a big fan of ranked choice voting. Uh, I think it's, it, and here in Massachusetts, it's on the ballot. Um, and it's interesting, ranked choice voting is um, talked about a lot, has a lot of potential. Uh, there are pieces of it that we should recognize. One is that we don't now have many competitive elections. And in fact, for ranked choice voting to make a difference, you need to have at least three candidates. You may want me to, you may want to Yeah, what, what is it? Let's, what, let's what explain is what it is. Before, okay, so ranked choice voting is a system where voters get not just one choice for each candidate. They, if there are multiple candidates, they can pick their first choice, second choice, third choice. And the votes are tallied in such a way that if one candidate wins 50% or more of the vote of the first choices, that candidate wins. If not, then the process goes into something called an instant runoff, where the candidate with the fewest number of votes is eliminated and all the ballots that were for that eliminated candidate 
are then reallocated on the basis of the second choices on those ballots to the remaining candidates. That continues until you have typically a majority winner as the other ballots get, get reallocated. And it ensures in almost all cases that the resulting winner is supported by the majority. So that's kind of its big benefit that it's meant to deliver. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting reform. Um, we've done some work looking at, and it's, it's particularly valuable now in the context of a transition in political organizing in the US from kind of party control over the candidate nomination process and, you know, it's a certain amount of sort of backroom kind of party leadership that says, okay, that person or that person is going to run here or there. That's sort of the old school way that parties were run to what we have now, which is the grassroots really control and an enormous amount of sort of grassroots mobilized candidates, particularly at the primary level. And the impact of that is very crowded primaries. We did a study on this, and I think it was something like 215 of the House primaries in 2018 had four or more candidates. That's more than half. Uh, and I think 170 or 180 had five or more. And when you start to have that many candidates in a primary, you start to get the risk that one of them wins by 25, 30%. And maybe that's very reflective of what the, uh, the constituency wants, but you don't know because the candidate hasn't really been supported by the majority. And we took a sort of analysis to find out, you know, do these candidates who win with a sort of low plurality actually have you know more extreme positions when they get into Congress. And it turns out it turns out they do. There are ways that you can there you can sort of score members of Congress on how they vote on a partisan spectrum. And um, members of Congress who entered after a primary where they won with only a plurality support were more extreme ideologically and less representative of their constituency than members who won with a majority. So ranked choice voting is the fix to that problem. That sort of that problem is kind of our rules are creating the extremism that you know we all are decry that we, that we all want to see stop, and we can stop it to a certain extent through through adapting ranked choice voting. Could we also do ranked choice voting for the party primaries for the president? Um, one of the things that happened absolutely. In Absolutely. One of the things that happened in Washington is because we have mail-in voting, some of the candidates had dropped out after Washingtonians had, had cast their ballot if they were voting in the Democratic primary. So they were talking about the ranked choice voting as just a way to eliminate candidates that are no longer even in the race, potentially. I, I don't remember the numbers, but there were huge numbers of ballots cast for candidates who had dropped out by the time the election day for that primary took place. So, so this past primary was a great example of that, as was the Republican primary in 2016. You know, and, it, and presidential right. primaries will probably continue to be very, very crowded on the non-incumbent side. Um, so right. it, 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 uh, the challenging piece is integrating ranked choice voting into a presidential election. Uh, and it's often, you often hear a kind of fairly um, facile commentary, oh, you know, we should elect the president via ranked choice voting. And from an abstract perspective, yes, it would be great if we could, you know, have first choice, second choice on the presidency. But mechanically, the way it works, you would need every state to agree to use ranked choice voting 
for it to work mechanically. And that's a difficult hurdle. Um, the, the reform that I was talking about before, the top two proportional, you know, one of the things that works well about it is individual states can adopt ranked choice voting and that can impact how the top two are determined. So if, right. so you, you understand what I mean by that, yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about campaign finance because I think what's interesting about campaign finance is like, you know, uh, you know, I remember, you know, this being a huge thing in the early 2000s and, and John McCain and all that legislation. And then Citizens United was decided. And I think since then people have kind of viewed campaign finances like settled law, since that obviously had to do with an interpretation of what the first amendment allows. Um, so, but a lot of people are still kind of upset about the role that, that money plays in our elections. So what do you see as the real opportunities for reform on the campaign finance side? I think people have every reason to be upset about the role that money plays. Uh, I remember seeing something about the 2018 campaign that I believe it was 40 donors contributed half a billion dollars to that campaign. Um, you know, the notion that elections result in policies determined by the majority when you have 40 wealthy families contributing a half a billion dollars. It's just, it's, it's untenable. So I think it still has to remain a priority, even though Citizens United makes it much more difficult. We are big supporters of what gets called the 28th Amendment, which is a constitutional amendment to allow Congress and the states to set reasonable limits on election spending and election fundraising. Um, that amendment has been proposed. It's now supported by all the Democrats in the House and Senate and has a couple of Republican uh, supporters. Um, and I believe they are, there's talk about a sort of combination deal where that amendment would kind of be married with a term limit amendment that gets a lot of support on, on, on the right as a way of getting uh, Republican senators and representatives on board. But I think progress is going to continue in that area. I think there's a real recognition, you know, every, the, the increase in spending every election is just extraordinary. And so there's real recognition that this is a problem that we need to fix. But, you know, to go back to your question, that constitutional level is not the only area, you know, where there is room for action here. Uh, and I think the, the the small dollar voucher programs, for example, Seattle had a great one. Seattle sure. has one, yeah. I'm yeah. sure you know a lot more. Well, I mean, do you live in, you're based in Seattle, right? Yeah, yeah, the democracy vouchers, yeah. Yeah, I mean, reading about it from out of state, it sounded great, but I mean, you, you're there, so you can tell me, sometimes these things get described as better than they actually were. How well did it work? Well, I, you know, to be honest, I use it, I don't use it in my class on my comparative politics class on uh, democracy in the modern world. I actually use it in my class on um, political crime and corruption, where I, you know, because it sounds so good on paper and it's, it's the kind of thing that, you know, Seattleites love and, you know, young people love the sound of, but I actually use it for the reverse. Um, as an example of, is this essentially vote buying? Does this constitute individuals now buying their representatives votes? And so what it is, is every, every voter is given a certain number of vouchers that they can then apportion to the candidate that they want the voucher to fund. So I could say $25 goes to candidate Kevin and $25 goes to, to candidate James, and that money is actually publicly funded. So it's not my individual money, but it, me as the individual voters deciding where I, where the voucher goes. And so I sort of pose it as, is this just a modern form of vote buying? And what do you conclude? 
Well, I, I don't conclude anything for my students. Um, I, I just pose it, you know, I'm always trying to get them to think about it. I think they, I think from their perspective, and I don't think it's wrong, is this is in a sense giving them a little bit of the tools that rich people already have. So it's not that this um, necessarily changes the system of financing as such from their perspective, but rather that it gives them you know, something like the equivalent of $100, which they otherwise would not have, to then donate to a candidate who will then become more responsible to people like them, because that candidate, just like, just like if you want to get money from, you know, Shelton Adelson, you have to appeal to whatever policies he wants. They think that this is basically allowing them to have greater representation for people like them, you know, be it young people or college students or whatever. And there, I think it is, so, so, so the point being is that it doesn't fundamentally change the nature of money in politics. It just changes who gets to participate in that game. Which sounds like an important change. I mean, you know, elections are always going to be expensive. We have an extraordinarily expensive media market across the U.S. Um, now, in some ways, it would be interesting to figure out. It doesn't really fit with our presidential system as well as our as a parliamentary system, but to figure out some shortening of the campaign period. Uh, you know, parliamentary elections are nice in that respect because they're called and then you have a month or two and bang, that's it. And you don't have this thing that goes on, you know, and really disrupts the country for such a long time and generates a massive, massive spending. And then you, you get, there is a, an element of a sort of a political industrial complex that's sort of been getting fat off of this for, for decades and, and has an entrenched interest in keeping it going just, just as it is. But I mean, I think it's a huge, huge problem. I mean, you know, I mean, Fundamental from a policy side, it's hard to get worse than the projections for climate change in terms of the what's what's ahead. That's really, really a big problem that we got to figure out how to fix. You know, and, and there isn't really a reason not to believe scientists. You know, they're saying some amazingly terrible things are in our long-term future that we have to prepare for now. But you know, they talk about something like eighty percent of the the known oil reserves will have to stay in the ground for climate change to be combated. And those known oil reserves represent assets uh, on the balance sheet of the people who are funding the elections. Uh, yeah. and, and they're just discovering I'm, more and more every day too. It's not like it's gonna run out anytime soon, but it's, the what, pace of discovery is incredible. So climate change, to, for it to proceed, you have to sort of get the funding of election out of you know, the hands of the people who have that fundamental conflict of interest. And that's a, that's a big challenge. So Kevin, kind of to, to, to wrap up big picture, I think all of this discussion kind of leads us to recognize that in many ways, you know, whether it's very focused or just big picture, the outcomes that we get in elections in the United States are in large part, just a function of institutional rules in as much as they are the quote unquote will of the people. You know, it's really both of these things interacting, but because of the way institutions and rules have been developed, the outcome that we get is not always perfectly reflective of what voters want, um, or even really that reflective at all. And in fact, it, it's distortive in a lot of ways. Um, so I can see all the things we've talked about in terms of getting new rules um, or new, new institutions, but what about voters themselves? Like what is the role of voters in this process and the role of the public? Because you could change all manner of rules. And is that necessarily gonna mean that the, the voting public is more interested in learning them? Um, do they have to support or oppose them? Uh, what is the role of voters after these changes are meant to be made? 
It's a great question, and I have a couple of thoughts on that. First, I think some of these changes will improve the outcomes of our elections, even without significant change in sort of degree of voter interest, you know, degree of polarization among the population. It's just a matter of sort of changing the algorithm that takes a, a certain set of policy, uh, population, a certain set of preferences, and filters them through the, the voting system to yield results. So some of this will be good, even if voters, you know, stay as they are. The second thing I'd say is, you know, we actually have, in many respects, we have an extraordinarily engaged electorate in the U.S. I mean, we generate, you know, civic organizations at a much higher rate than, than other countries. Um, we have, you know, people write their representatives here at much higher rates than, than other countries. You know, th there is sort of an anger and a frustration that's behind some of that. Uh, and some, in some respects, that anger and frustration is understandable. In some respects, I think you could argue it can represent a bit of an unrealistic expectation of how well a system can work and how much a system can reflect all of its people or take on board the needs of all of its people. I mean, there is there there are a lot of limits to how much government can do for us and uh, or be or represent. So we are sometimes a little demanding. You know, uh, but it's healthy. It's better to be demanding than apathetic. And even though I know turnout rates are sometimes lower than they should be, and there are there is sort of an apathetic segment of the population, you know, we've got a pretty engaged electorate right now. Um, I think we should do more. You know, there always needs to be more civic education at all levels. I'd love to see the civic education include just a little bit of a look at what happens in other countries, just so that. As students grow up, they recognize, oh, that's how we do it. Other countries do it differently. That's kind of interesting. I think that will facilitate the whole sort of democratic maintenance theme we've been thinking about. It's a lot easier to kind of think about, vote on, envision, support changes if you already know that there are alternatives out there around the world. Most of us in the United States don't even know that kind of core concept. They sort of think the American way is the only way that it's done. So I think civic education needs to be intensified and has an important role to play. But I'm not, I'm not skeptical or pessimistic or negative about the American voter. I think, you know, particularly this election is demonstrating extraordinary involvement. Now, the, you know, the flip side of involvement is going to have to be accepting results. And you need both, you know, whichever side loses, um, you know, needs to show the, the strength of our civilization and our culture by accepting accepting the results, and that's kind of an important if that we're going to see see how that pans out. But I think there we have reason for optimism there as well. I hope. Well, I think too. I mean, the argument could be made that once you start the, opening the window for reform, then people think they have skin in the game, and and that they mm -hmm. then actually want to participate because they think it matters. You know, we all may think it may or may not matter to vote for a particular candidate, but if you think your participation in public life also matters to how you are going to participate in the future, then people have an incentive to start paying attention once the reform, you know, the effort for reform starts to take off, in my experience. And I think, and that speaks to the value of the states that have the referendum, the state ballot initiative as a means to change their system. I mean, you talk about, you know, like the Michigan redistricting story, which was launched by this woman, this 28-year-old woman, Katie Fahey, sent out a Facebook post saying, you know, sounds like redistricting's a bad idea. Uh, sounds like gerrymandering's a bad idea. Anyone want to join me in trying to fix it? And next thing she knew, she was running a movement and the movement worked. And 
you know, it, it, it put in place uh, an independent redistricting sy system in Michigan. So that kind of, you know, grassroots people led uh, story still happens in this country. And it can particularly happen through that vehicle of the state ballot initiative. Yeah, I, I tell my students all the time, don't wait for the people in charge to change the rules for you. They're not going to do that. You have to make them change the rules by participating and forcing, you know, doing exactly what you just described in Michigan. Nobody's going to just wake up one day and decide to change the rule and they've been doing the same thing that works for them and their friends forever, right? It takes new voices. It takes new people entering the process. It takes new ideas and experimentation. And the good news is there is more discussion of the kind we're having right here about our rules and how they could be changed than there really has been in decades in this country. And that's a very healthy sign. And I think it's gonna lead to, you know, this time period really being an era of reform, an important one. So Kevin, now kind of wrapping up both podcasts, um, on January 20th at 12.01, when there's a new presidential administration, whether it's a new, you know, whether it's a, a, a Trump administration again, or whether it's a Biden administration, looking back, what do you think in this election, we're gonna realize that we did absolutely spot on well, um, what we did that was a total disaster and what we didn't realize we were or weren't doing that we sort of missed or didn't have our eye on the ball? Wow, tough, tough question. I think the first one is the easiest. I think we are going to, in general, feel we did a good job responding to the need for change for holding elections under a pandemic. You know, not every state has done everything it could. You know, some of the changes have been resisted. There's been a lot of fights in courts, but in the main, voters have a much bigger range of options for how to vote and how to vote safely than they, they did in 2018. I mean, it's a very changed voting process. And I think that's, we're gonna look back and see that has been very successful. Um, you know, what did we do? What, that's the first one. What was the question two or three again? Well, what did we get totally wrong? Or what did we totally mess up? Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think that's hard to say, but I think, um, you know, one of the really interesting issues is where do norms fit? Um, we have, we've had norms, norms are important to any democracy. You know, the founders wrote a constitution. They did not expect that those words would be enough. They knew that, you know, great people and, 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 the, and the belief in things that we share in common was going to breathe spirit into those words. Um, and that takes the form of kind of accept what's appropriate behavior among political leaders. And our norms really have been stretched and bent and changed and undermined this cycle kind of as never before. And I think, you know, it, it, it has the tolerance of that across the political class or across segments of the political class um, gone too far. I think that's, that's gonna be a question. Uh, because it may be that the trampling of norm, norms leads to the trampling of people on the street. Let's, you know, God forbid, let's hope not. But that's that's kind of a risk. And the third one was the thing we didn't have our eye on the ball with. I mean, I, I just, you know, every time you, re, you, you hear the recount, uh, recounting of the Obama administration in 2016 and what they did and didn't know about Russia, you know, I'm sure they would all love a redo. Um, what are we gonna, what do you think we're gonna have likely to have missed in terms of something that was very consequential to the outcome, but we just didn't have our eye on the, on, on the ball? You know, it's a good question. I mean, the scenarios that we talked about the other day about the Electoral College are, is a potential area. Um, 
again, I'm I'm optimistic that we won't run into the kinds of problems there. And 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 there, you know, a number of people do have their eyes on that ball. That's something that's been that's been pretty well studied. Um, so I'm trying to think. You know, it's it, I don't have my eye on the ball either. <laughs> I'm I'm not able to come up with the unknown unknown at this point. So no, I don't have a good answer for that one. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Kevin Johnson. I really appreciate it. I've had a lot of fun. Me too, James. Thanks. Thanks very much. You too. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Political Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.